after never a never before seen leak of a draft U.S. Supreme Court decision that would overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade court decision that legalized abortion in America. It prompted protests in front of the Supreme Court last night. Well, the court today confirmed that the draft decision obtained by the news outlet Politico was indeed authentic, but does not represent the court's final decision due in the early summer. President Joe Biden says that a whole range of rights are now in jeopardy. If Roe versus Wade is indeed overturned, the Democrats today focused on the potential impacts of the decision, while the Republicans tried to focus on the leak of the draft decision itself. Here is Democrat Senator Elizabeth Warren and Republican Ted Cruz. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. 69% of people across this country, across this country, red states and blue states. I have to say it is utterly stunning uh, that anyone at the court would leak a draft opinion. Uh, In over 200 years of our nation's history, this has never happened. And I'm appalled. That was Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz speaking. The repercussions being felt here in Canada today as well. Well, joining me now from Montreal with more on this is Kelly Gordon, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the United States. Uh, Kelly Gordon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I, I guess the obvious place to start is your reaction to the Politico story. I, I saw it late yesterday and, and thought, wow, I've never seen something like this before. Yeah, I mean, I think one part of it was really surprising that a draft of a decision got leaked. Uh, the Supreme Court is known for a secrecy. So that, I think, is a really surprising element. I think less surprising, um, given the new composition of the Supreme Court, is probably the decision itself or the draft decision itself. We know that it could change um, in the next couple of months. What exactly did the decision say? And in what sense was it not surprising to see Justice Alito uh, voice what he voiced in that draft? So, I mean, I think what's not surprising if we look at this, if we take kind of a bird's eye view of it, is that abortion rights have been under attack basically since the Roe v. Wade decision in the 1970s. Um, So this is sort of a continuation of the movement, the anti-abortion movement that is gaining ground politically and legally. Um, So really, since the Roe v. Wade decision, we've seen the tenets of that decision be chipped away. Uh, So in 1992, we have the Casey decision, which really dilutes the Roe v. Wade decision. And what we've seen is that states, individual states themselves, have been very effective at passing laws that actually, you know, um, go after concrete access to abortion care. Um, So I think this is kind of... um, the the culmination of decades of work on the part of the anti-abortion movement and anti-abortion legislatures. And then kind of more short term, it's not surprising um, because we knew with the two uh, new Supreme Court justices that were appointed by Trump that that would kind of change the balance of power in the Supreme Court. For listeners to understand, this is in fact a ruling on one of those states, Mississippi in this case, that it passed a new law that was then challenged. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. 
where what does what happens now? So this was just a draft decision. Um, we know that within the court that these draft decisions are often then debated upon. But surprisingly, I, I suppose somewhat surprisingly, the court today said, in fact, this is indeed a legitimate document because there was some speculation yesterday that we didn't know whether this was true, whether this was actually uh, a legitimate leak or not. I mean, what happens now is that, you know, everything sort of stays the same until the real decision is released, which I think will be sort of at the end of June or maybe even the end of July. Um, and then, so, so I mean, the thing about this decision being overturned is that it's going to affect different states differently. So it basically is empowering states to either ban abortion or to continue supporting abortion care. So in a lot of states, more liberal states where um, abortion care is legal and hasn't been under attack, nothing will change. Um, but in a lot of states where, you know, Republican states, uh, where they already have been very effective at passing laws that have shut down clinics. I mean, abortion access is going look, the reality is uh, women always have abortions, whether it's legal or not. So abortion care will continue. Um, but there's going to be certain segments of women that aren't going to be able to access care. Um, and, and we know uh, that, you know, poor women, women of color, these are the women that are going to be most affected um, in states where where now abortion will be prohibited. And, and I mean, oh, sorry, to continue on that, there's, there's already a lot of states that have laws in place that sort of as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, a new ban on abortion will, will come into place. So, I mean, it can happen very, very quickly once the formal decision is released. How much momentum, how much of a victory would this be? for those groups that have fought for, as you pointed out, the better part of 40 years, 50 yeah. years almost now, to try and have Roe v. Wade overturned. Yeah, this is a culmination of, of decades of work. Um, I mean, another interesting thing, I think, is it shows that their kind of Trump gamble paid off. Um, so, you know, the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. and elsewhere is a multifaceted, fragmented movement. But there are certainly certain parts of the movement that were not super keen on Donald Trump. Um, but the movement, you know, so once he won the nomination, the movement kind of coalesced around him and obviously were a big part of his victory. And I think really it was like, OK, we can like hold our nose and vote for Donald Trump, even though he's been married a bunch of times, even though, you know, he is the guy that he is. Um, because, you know, there's going to be new Supreme Court justices in the next few years. And so I think this really proves that that gamble that they made with Trump paid off in the long run. And, and reversing this, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and so this is, a, this is a huge kind of like pseudo-permanent win for the anti-abortion movement. Within states, as you mentioned earlier, those states, it'll be then left, obviously, to the states to legislate partly on their own. So states that do already have uh, protect the woman's right to choose will be will continue to do so. But we will see certainly an erosion of any what's left of, of abortion rights in many other places. That's right. And I mean, even in liberal states, you can imagine that Republican legislatures will feel very empowered. And so you know, even in places where abortion is accessible and legal, there could be sort of intensified debates within those states as well. I know this is, might be an unanswerable question, but why has abortion been that lightning rod for so long? And what happens if, in fact, it's overturned? That's such a good question. So, I mean, 
Abortion is this really interesting issue that I think lies at the intersection of a lot of things um, and touches on a lot of different aspects of American politics that are important. So it has this kind of symbolic weight. So, you know, it touches on the role of religion in politics, um, on the role of women's rights, right? So it, it kind of touches all of these different facets of American political life. And so I think it's sort of become this representative issue. Um, there, this is an old quote now, but there's this quote that I love. It's Sarah Palin, and she's speaking to a Republican audience, and she says, you know, abortion is a way to identify and unify Republicans. And I think that that is really what it became, um, certainly after the 1980s, when the religious right sort of took over the Republican Party. It's been this kind of lightning rod issue and, and, a, and an issue that sort of identifies, unifies Republicans, and maybe to a lesser extent, Democrats as well, right? That a right to choose. Um, so I think it, it's become, I mean, not only as an issue really important, but also kind of symbolically in the culture wars, um, an issue that, that can be used as a shortcut to, to kind of other kinds of political ideas and identities. I'm speaking with Kelly Gordon, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the U.S. After this, we'll look at what kind of impact this could have here at home. It's an American decision, but clearly these sorts of issues cross many boundaries. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Kelly Gordon, Assistant Professor of Political Science at McGill University and co-author of The Changing Voice of the Anti-Abortion Movement, The Rise of Pro-Women Rhetoric in Canada and the United States. We've been talking about the leak of a draft decision by uh, the news outlet Politico yesterday um, about a decision in the Supreme Court of uh, the United States that would ostensibly overturn Roe v. Wade, the uh, the seminal um, abortion ruling that was passed back in 1983, essentially legalizing abortion in the United States. Uh, long fought uh, by people who've opposed it and uh, long fought in the courts by people who've opposed it. And now, in fact, if this draft decision uh, stays the way it is, it would, in fact, be be overturned by a 5-4 vote, we think, sometime in the early summer. Uh, Kelly, in terms of Canada, uh, this is a different debate in Canada, um, given the 1988 Supreme Court ruling here. But what sort of impact could this have uh, in this country? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so one, I think that Canadians, I mean, as Canadians, as a Canadian, I follow American news. How can you not? Um, and I think that Canadians tend to kind of import ideas that we have about American politics to the Canadian context. And I think in this context, we have to be a little bit careful about doing that. We have our own kind of distinct history of abortion politics, which is very different than the American context. Um, so, you know, if the question is, you know, could this, could the overturning of Roe v. Wade mean the criminalization of abortion in Canada? Um, like, no, I, I, I don't think that it can. We have a really sort of different history. In what sense, just just for listeners who who may, because it's easy sometimes to conflate the two stories if you're not paying close attention to the American story and the Canadian story. What is the status of abortion law in this country? So we are this really unique kind of country that actually has no abortion law on the books. Um, so abortion for a lot of different reasons, uh, is treated as a medical uh, procedure here. Um, it's controlled by the medical community, and we have no criminal law that actually legislates abortion. So it's treated more like um, like knee surgery or heart surgery. Could it be threatened, though, if there were, if there were I mean, already, I gather, access is, is, is unequal, depending on where you live. Um, so, so, you know, I think that 
there's two different things, right? So on the one hand, there's this question of abortion rights um, and, and, and whether, you know, uh, an abortion ban could come into effect in Canada. And I mean, technically, it would actually be pretty easy for a prime minister to criminalize abortion. Um, we know that the PMO, the prime minister, has a lot of power in Canada. So if they had a majority government, they could easily, I mean, it's much easier than in the US where it happens state by state. Um, they could easily pass a law kind of with a majority government. Um, but that will not happen. And, it, and it's hard to sort of explain why, except that we have this history and these norms and a real reluctance on the part of both the Canadian public, but also politicians themselves to bring this issue into the political realm. Um, so what's really interesting is, so in 1988, um, existing abortion laws are struck down as unconstitutional by the Morgenthaler decision, like you said, and then the so the Supreme Court is like, these laws are unconstitutional, but this is a job for the political realm, right? We don't draft laws, which actually makes it very different than the Roe v. Wade decision. So then we have the Mulroney government that comes in and tries to pass a new abortion law, which is sort of a compromise. Um, and if you know anything about Canadian politics, you know that the Senate is generally like a very ineffective institution, but the Senate actually blocks that legislation. And since then, no sitting government has introduced any abortion-related legislation. And this really speaks to this idea, and I mean, we see it with the Conservative Party, um, that politicians do not see this as a winning issue, and they actually don't want to take it up in, in the public. So that's the one hand is I really, there's no, I mean, we saw it with Aaron O'Toole, the former leader of the Conservative Party. Um, he sort of is like ambiguous about his stance on abortion during the leadership debates. And then he comes in and one of the first announcements he makes as conservative leader is like, I'm pro-choice, right? So you even have to be kind of pro-choice um, to be a conservative leader, right? It, opposing abortion is just not a vote getting strategy in Canada. So that's kind of one side of it. But you speak about access, which I also think is a really important part of it. And you're right, right? Abortion access is inequitable throughout the country. So we can talk about kind of an abortion law and rights, but I also think we need to talk about access, right? Access to abortion care tends to be concentrated in urban centers. There's discrepancies throughout the, the country um, with the maritime provinces sort of lagging behind, although that's changed a little bit in the last few years. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think we should be talking about you know, in the wake of Roe v. Wade, maybe less kind of the legal side and a fear that it's going to be criminalized, which it won't be, and more about, you know, what we can do to kind of expand access. Would it be beneficial at all to have politicians, in fact, enact some sort of law uh, codifying what exactly this is all about? Because it feels like we, we simply push it aside because no one really wants to get involved. A lot of the abortion provision community might say, no, like the thing about Canada is like, it's not politicians that should be legislating abortion care. This is a medical procedure, right? It's a medical procedure that a third of women undergo in their lifetime. Um, and there's no need for politicians to be involved in that decision. And so the way the, the sort of status quo in Canada where it's really the medical community um, and, and women making sort of decisions around abortion care is, is a much better sort of system. 
just to briefly return to the U.S., um, this will obviously have huge political implications. Well, we have the midterms coming up. We've seen the political divisions today already around this issue. It, it, do you expect it to be a very, regardless of what decision we see from the Supreme Court, and we knew it was coming uh, this year before the midterms, I imagine this is just a taste of what we're about to see politically in the U.S.? I mean, I think so. So one one interesting thing, if you think about the impacts of these types of decisions, is before 1973, the year of the Roe v. Wade decision, there was actually no standalone anti-abortion movement or pro-life movement in the U.S., right? The, the liberalization of the abortion law created that social movement, right? That social and political movement that then becomes so influential in the Republican Party. So, I mean, in some ways, that decision kind of remakes the political context in the U.S. And so, you know, maybe we can imagine this decision doing something similar. Like, obviously, these movements already exist, um, but kind of remaking the, the field of, of, uh, of, of social movements. On the, on the Democratic side, what we expect at the bottom, I mean, we've already seen it today that, uh, that there has been a huge mobilization around this issue on, on, the, on the pro-choice side. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is Joe Biden has been, uh, I mean, he's a Catholic and outspoken Catholic. He's not sort of the defender of a woman's right to choose that I think many American women would probably wish that he was. And I, I just briefly heard some of his comments and he was talking really about the importance of this decision in that it will affect many other issues and Supreme Court decisions. Um, so, you know, that's going to be interesting too, um, how much the Democratic Party sort of seizes this issue and, and makes it their own. Um, it, like for very understandable reasons, given what's been happening in American politics over the last decade in terms of racial politics, um, in terms of systemic racism. Uh, you know, I think that abortion politics haven't been at the forefront like they were maybe at the beginning of the 2000s. And so whether that changes, whether, you know, on the kind of progressive side, on the democratic side, new coalitions of politics emerge between kind of issues of reproductive justice and communities of color. I think that these are going to be kind of interesting developments um, in the wake of, of this decision. Kelly Gordon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me.